Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Today, we are talking about systematics, specifically SEC code, nomenclature code for prokaryotes described from sequence data. Joining us to talk about it are co-authors on the recent publication, Marika Palmer and Miguel Rodriguez. Marika Palmer is a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And Miguel Rodriguez is an assistant professor of bioinformatics at the University of Innsbruck in the departments of microbiology and the Digital Science Center. So welcome to you both. Hi, Nabil. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. So let's start off with something simple. I mentioned this word systematics. What is systematics? Let's give it to to Miguel, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. So systematics is a generic term to, to refer to the disciplines studying the classification and naming of persons, of biological organisms. And in general, the, the distinction is made between the actual classification of organisms, which is called taxonomy, versus the rules and regulations for naming those groups or those taxa, which is called nomenclature. And the joint study of, of naming and classification of biological entities in general is, is typically referred to as systematics. Okay, good. So today we're not strictly talking too much on the taxonomy side, I guess. Right. Not, <laughs> not really. So please don't at us or get, ang- get upset. With that little bit of disclaimer out of the way, I wanted to ask you both, actually, what do you do regularly in your, in your work? What's your organism of choice or area of expertise? And how do you both know each other and, and, got, and got involved with this project? So first off, in terms of the organisms that we work with, I actually don't work on a specific group of organisms as such. I've been fortunate to be part of collaborations that work with a lot of cultivated organisms, so typically from soil and oftentimes rhizobial cultures. So it would be nitrogen-fixing bacteria that actually live in symbiosis with legumes, but I'm also part of a research group that looks at microbes from extreme environments. So in the research group of Brian Hedlund, we kind of use a lot or spend a lot of our time looking at novel microbes that haven't been cultured before and try to cultivate them and also try to understand their ecology. So we basically work with bacteria and archaea. And what I'm personally most involved with is oftentimes anarchia from hot springs, but I've also actually started working more on the uh, virome of extreme environments as well. So I actually look at some viral DNA and from a biotechnological perspective, what we can learn and what we can use from all of the genetic diversity out there. From, from my side, I, yeah, I 
similar to, to Marika, I, I have an interest mostly in microbial ecology. So I don't really work with one specific organism, organism, although I have been going back and forth for many years since my master on taxonomy and genomics of Santomonas. So that's if I had to pick one organism, that might be the one. More recently, I'm, I'm working with the microbacterium as well and some freshwater pelagibacteralis also. But uh, it might be Santomonas, the one that I, that I favor. And yeah, I, I, I mostly work on environmental genomics of towards uh, microbial ecology, the understanding of whole communities and whole microbial assemblages rather. And we, uh, we really, we met with Marika through, through the Seed Code group. We have actually yes. never met in person. <laughs> Wow, fantastic. So, I mean, Lee and I, Lee and I don't meet up that often either. So, you know, so since you mentioned both your backgrounds that puts you and, and you mentioned C code, what, what is C code then? And what is the problem C code is trying to solve? My relation to C code is mostly one of necessity. I, as I mentioned, I'm very interested in ecology and one of the foundational pillars of ecology is consistent systematics. And we, we have an issue in, in the field where we have learned quite a lot about a large number of species through their genomes, for which we just don't have stable names. And, and so through that problem, I got, I got interested first in taxonomy and later on in, in nomenclature and in the, in the issues of, of stabilities of names, of the stability of names. Yeah, so, so basically, if you think about nomenclature as a whole, like it's often described as the language used for us to actually be able to communicate the diversity and specific organisms to make sure that we're referring to consistent things and that we're effectively able to communicate about, about those things. So in terms of the C code, this is basically a set of rules that governs how we form names for the organisms that are not yet able to cultivate or that we have genome sequences for that we can use as the basis for naming those organisms. All right. So let's, I'm still wrapping my head around systematics versus taxonomy. So let's say you find new bacterium that you can only sequence. You can't culture it. It's in the lake. Do you give it a genus and species and you just, you leave the family name up till later? So if you're able to actually, so this comes into the classification, which the C code doesn't govern. So no code of nomenclature governs the taxonomy of the organism. So your taxonomic freedom isn't impeded by what any code of nomenclature gives as guidance for naming those microbes. But if you've used, if you have a genome for an organism that you can or cannot cultivate, and you want to name this organism because you have used whatever set of criteria that you think is logical and justified to show this is a new organism, then it can either be depending on what analyses you've done or what decisions you've made in terms of the taxonomy of that organism, decide to call it a new species, or if it's sufficiently novel to be a new genus, you can give it a genus and a species name because you have to have a type for the genus that you're describing. And depending on how novel they are and depending what criteria you use, it could become a new family or a new order level lineage as well. And then you would ideally, I think, if you're sure in terms of what the taxonomy of that organism should be, ideally you should describe all of those 
intermediate ranks as well, up to the point that the last existing parent taxon exists. So if you have a sufficiently novel organism to potentially be the first representative of a new order, ideally you should describe the order, family, genus, and then the, the species, or at least name them, if you're not just providing descriptions for them, and then associate your order that you've now generated to accommodate that taxon to a parent, parent taxon, so in other words, a class. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so one of the questions, a simple question then, you sort of mentioned it, but just to, firstly, so what C code is trying to do doesn't step on the toes of you know taxonomic assignment like GTDB, for instance, right? I'm just going right. to say that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. so just to reiterate something that Marika mentioned that is very very important. So the the principle one of the C code ends with nothing in the C code may be construed to restrict the freedom of taxonomic opinion or action, and that's. So that's right at the beginning, that's principle one. So the, the, the C code is meant to provide a stable system to generate names, but how those organisms are grouped, meaning how the taxonomy is developed, that depends on, of course, the authors and the peer review system. Yes. Right, so and you, you both use this thing of, you keep, you, Marika kind of hinted on it, and you keep using this word, stable naming. I mean, if I call, I call you, I call you Miguel, that's stable, we're done, right? So, so why can't I call it, you know, cuties and just be done with it? So ultimately, I mean, no taxonomic system and rules that govern the naming, so the nomenclature would be completely static or stable, because I think that would actually prevent scientific progress. But ultimately, what we aim to strive for, at least, would be some stability in that taxonomic system. But it's okay if we're not in full agreement on the taxonomy of organisms, as long as we have stable names for them. So ultimately, our taxonomic opinion might differ over time as we learn more information about a specific taxon, and then we might assign it to a, an already existing genus, transfer it to an already existing genus, or change the name to reflect our current taxonomic understanding of it. But ultimately, having the names in place to be sure that we're referring to a particular organism, that's the kind of stability that we're aiming for. So, so maybe it's, it's a good moment to introduce the idea of the principle of priority. Yes. And that really is what is what at, at, the, the, at the root of the question of stability. So the principle of priority is a principle that has been developed across codes of nomenclature for different organisms to deal with the fact that our taxonomics opinion, opinion, taxonomic opinions change and there might be parallel groups working in the same taxa. And the, the main idea of the principle of priority is that any one taxon that is named will retain that name so far as that name is, is valid under a given code of nomenclature. Valid yeah. and correct. Valid and correct, correct, yes. <laughs> and on the other hand, one name that has been validly and correctly assigned to a taxon cannot be used 
for any other taxon in the future. So once it has been published validly and correctly published, it's, it's a reserved moniker for that taxon. And that is really what is allowing that this, this degree of stability. That doesn't exist or that didn't exist for uncultured prokaryotes between 2001 and the publication of the SIG code, because the, 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 the code of, of nomenclature for, for prokaryotes required the deposition of, of strains into culture collections in two different countries. Yeah, so, so then I guess we should lead into the crib that people were using, which is they just named their things candidatus, which is a catch-all for, for any, anything that hasn't been formally assigned. And that's not regulated at all. So, right. So I could write a paper and say, I have candid, you know, Alicani and, and be done with it. And, uh, you know, you could do the same. You could use a similar name and it could all be colliding and very, very confusing. Right. So, yes. so, so what, what's the rationale? Take us to Candidatus as a explanation and how, how you see it, the, the, that as a problem. Yeah, so funnily enough, there is actually one regulation for candidatus, the only one that I'm aware of, and is that it cannot be assigned to organisms that are cultivated. Uh, so that's, if it's cultivated, you cannot name it candidatus. And we can see, we can talk about that later, but there are other reasons why the regulations of the ICMP might not be compatible with naming organisms, even if they are already cultivated. There, there are other reasons, but the problem with not having priority for these names is that we, we end up, and we have seen it in practice, we end up with a flurry of names that are all referring to the same taxa. Mm -hmm. So we have many synonyms and we can potentially have also names being reused to refer to different taxa. So we have oh, homonyms, which is really the, the main objective of nomenclature is to have one taxon, one name. That really is it. And of course, if we don't have, if we have synonyms and homonyms, that, that one job of the whole discipline is, well, goes, goes. And the fact that Gandadotis isn't regulated in any way whatsoever in terms of how names are formed or what you need in place to be able to name something means that there are very many Gandadotis taxa which don't have an actual species that it's associated with. So we could be talking about families or orders or classes, but we don't have an anchor point of a specific organism for that name. So there's in literature, there's a lot like a plethora of candidatus taxa that only refer to higher taxonomic ranks and not to specific species either. So if I now find species X, which actually belongs to class Y that someone described as a candidatus class at some point, there's technically nothing that prevents me from just giving it whatever name I want. And then ultimately the name that's assigned to the class, the high, like the higher ranks as candidatus names kind of gets lost in literature. And there's not a good track record of where those names have gone and what they are actually referring to. Maybe I can again introduce here another concept to, to expand on what Marika is explaining and is the concept of the nomenclatural type. Since we don't know a priori what biological diversity is like, 
and what will we find in the future, we have a really hard time naming it. Even if we knew it will be hard just because there is so much biological diversity, but not knowing in advance makes it even harder. And so the, the genius idea behind most or all nomenclatural codes is that we can assign an anchor and anything that is similar enough to that anchor gets the same name. Now, similar enough has a... That's the taxonomic It's doing, doing a heavy lifting <laughs> here, but that's part of the freedom of taxonomic opinion. And it, of course, it varies depending on the rank of the taxon. But it is, it is a very clever idea that, again, goes sideways when we have something like a name of a phylum, but no specific anchor for it. There is no one representative of that phylum that 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 means anything closer to this file to this one organism similar enough to this one organism gets that name if in 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 five years we decide that there is too much diversity contained within that this taxon and we want to split it which one of the two parts gets the name and which one gets renamed there is there is no way of deciding no no objective way of deciding so that's why it's important to name things from the bottom up right defining one type material or one, one, one nomenclatural type for the species, and then from the species up to genus or family and, and, and so on. And, and really what we are trying to do here with the SIG code is simply saying that the type, the nomenclatural type of species and subspecies can be the genome. It doesn't have to be a pure culture deposited in two different countries in, in culture collections in two different countries it can be just their genome so you mentioned that that a genome could define the 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 thing the 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 nomenclature or the or it might be defined by like how closely related it is and that that term is ambiguous so when someone defines one of these terms are they define are there are there a bunch of properties that they put in with that so usually, I mean, when we're talking about species delineation or taxon delineation, people are free to use a variety of information to ultimately delimit that taxon one way or another. But I might believe genealogical concordance is the best way to circumscribe species and to look for species boundaries, so for cohesive groups that are analogous to species. Whereas someone else might believe average nucleotide or identity should form the basis of all of those decisions. And typically in prokaryotic taxonomy, when we're talking about species delineation, it's often seen as a polyphasic approach. So you try to use a range of different information and get the consensus of that to ultimately delimit the species. So we've, as more genome data has become available, we've progressively moved towards using genome data as the basis for identifying those species boundaries. And that's something that can be used for both cultivated organisms with genomes available and uncultivated organisms for which we have genomes available. So those are all really useful. Are those are those actually saved as as something in the C code repository? Like this is the anchor and these are the properties that would make it similar to this anchor. 
Yes, so that, that goes back, that goes now to what we call the zip code registry. So this, because we, in the zip code, the zip code is not tied to any one journal, which means all of the peer-reviewed scientific literature is, is a fair game and we cannot possibly scan all possible, all, all, all different proposals of, of taxa, of new taxa, taxon names. So we have, instead of tying the SIG code to a specific journal, what we have done is we have created a queryable repository that is called the SIG code registry. Um, and in the SIG code registry, there are a series of minimum data, minimum information that is required to propose the name, a new name. And one of them is the description. So the description is the description of a taxon is where the circumscription of that taxon is located. Sometimes that can be extensive two, three paragraphs talking about their ecophysiology and their metabolism and so on. Sometimes it can be a couple of sentences saying this taxon is circumscribed on the basis of you know, GTDB, RED indexes or average amino acid identity or average nucleotide identity. And, and under no code, is there actually a requirement for, so it, under the C code, there's also not a requirement, an absolute requirement for an actual description paragraph or what has typically been called a protologue, but basically the evidence for the novelty of that organism, the idea is that that needs to be presented in the effective publication. So the actual paper that gives you the evidence that this is something new. That's the idea that at least in that paper, there needs to be sufficient evidence to be convincing that this is a novel taxon. And even though I might not necessarily agree with that particular paper, that's again the taxonomic opinion where we need to draw a distinction between taxonomy and the nomenclature of it. I think Marika used here a term that maybe some of your listeners may not know, and it's effective publication. That's, that's another important concept in, 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 the, in the nomenclatural codes. The effective publication is the manuscript where the taxon is, uh, is described, where the evidence- but Where the novelty, name is mentioned, where, where the, the name, name is, is given. Where the name is proposed, yes. I, where the, which ideally is all the science behind or all the evidence of novelty of that taxon, right? It's, it's the vehicle through which the authors described all the process. And that is also captured by the SIG code. One of the, the, the last requirement, the last mandatory requirement for the naming of an organism in the SIG code is that the effective publication is deposited in the SIG code registry. Yes, so I can't just name something and validate it without an actual paper being published on the novelty of that organism. Okay, so a couple of observations on that. It actually sounds that this is actually a really important problem. I suppose it sounds like a, a fairly common problem where if you have, say, a data set or you have data points sort of displayed on a chart and you're trying to do clustering on that, you often have a, an interesting problem of deciding where those boundaries are in a complex data set. And one tactic that you seem to be describing is to pick a centroid and base your clustering around that. And that seems to be a fairly effective way of doing it. And that seems to be what you're applying here, using the using a specific genome as that centroid. The other thing I'll, I'll point out is 
this issue of runaway naming is not restricted to to naming species, but I'm sure people have encountered very weird, complicated problems with naming of genes, which doesn't have any such structure. You know, the gene, you'll you'll read a paper and it'll describe an opera and you think that's very interesting. You'll read another paper in another species, it'll describe another similar opera and you go, oh, that's, that's kind of similar. And you're like, no, it's actually the same thing. It's just the same thing. They named it in Yersinia something. They named it Nicolai something else. And no one's actually bothered to go back and reconcile those namings. The people who work in the species know, but as an outsider, you're just going to get, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. So to me, this sounds like really important stuff to, to sort of address before it gets out of, and I'm presuming that you're setting this up before it gets out of hand, before we have way too many genomes to, to deal with. It's also worth saying, I wanted to also say that when we're specifying a nomenclature type, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the the medoid organism genome of the genome of the organism. It doesn't mean that it's the most typical or the most average of that taxon at all. But yeah, if you were to cluster things based on average nucleotide identity or whatever, then using a medoid approach would make sense. But the type and doesn't necessarily have to be a typical and, and representative of that tax. One of the things I wanted to ask is, is actually this thing of this, the suggestion of using a genome sequence as that metoid is not necessarily that, is not that controversial because in classic taxonomy, surely this is something taken into consideration, right? Yes, yes. So all major journals of systematics have been requiring genomes to propose new taxa for very long time already. This is not something new. And in fact, if I may, in the, in the ICNP back in 1966, the requirement for the proposal of a new species or subspecies was that you will designate a type strain or in special cases, a description, a preserved specimen, preparation, or even an illustration. So we are really modernizing, bringing back that concept of bringing back that concept of freedom on on what we use the, the basis that we use as infor the basic information we use, and modernizing it to include a very uh, something that happens to be a very stable kind of data that is also much cheaper to obtain today, which is the genome. And something that is routinely used for species delineation and delimitation in cultivated organism, as you said, in traditional prokaryotic taxonomy as well. I mean, that's some genomes of cultivated under the ICNP, so the, the nomenclature or the code of nomenclature for prokaryotes, like we're already like validating names under that code using genome data so it's not, uh, Barney Whitman always says like, it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. It's an evolutionary change that allows us to actually use the data and the information that is appropriate for the organisms that we study. You mentioned this thing of, of prokaryotes. So is a seek and, and the difference of culture and non-culture. So the seek road apply to everything, cultured, uncultured, and is it only for bacteria or is it for, how far does, how far does that scope extend? 
Yeah, so the, in the, on the distinction of cultivated versus uncultivated, yes, the seed code applies to all prokaryotes, whether they are cultivated or not. You can propose a new name under the seed code, even if the name the organism is cultivated. There are reasons why you may have a culture, but you may not be able to validate your name through the ICNP. One of them is if you're if you have a pure culture, but that organism is fastidious, it's very difficult to grow. For example, it requires very high pressures or very low nutrient concentrations or something like that. That is, or or it's just it just takes years to double. That means that realistically you won't be able to deposit that organism in culture collections, at least not anytime soon. So that's that's one limitation, even if the organism is already cultured. Another limitation is the application, the uneven application of the Nagoya Protocol. The Nagoya Protocol regulates access to genetic resources and the fair and equitable sharing of, of benefits arising to the utilities for, to, from their utilization. And that is that regulation applies differently in different countries. And there are countries in which that regulation is a lot more strict, like, for example, in Brazil, in South Africa, in South Korea. And what that means is that descriptions coming from these places will almost never be attached to the transfer of material to two different countries just because they can't. They, they just can't mm-hmm. regulatorily. And and in some of the some of the countries, depending on the the interpretation of those countries that are signatories to the Nagoya Protocol, they might be allowed to export the culture to a culture collection, which the culture collection could effectively cultivate and deposit effectively within the culture collection. But then there's limitations on distributing those cultures to other researchers. And under the ICNP, there isn't allowed to be any restrictions like that. So even if you did deposit it, depending on which countries we're we're talking about, even if you ended up depositing your culture into international culture collections, there might be limitations on the actual distribution of those cultures afterwards. And then under the actual ICNP, you're not allowed to, they're not able to be validated, the names. Can I extend Nabil's question just a little bit more? So he asked about bacteria, but like, here, I promised you a ridiculous question before. So what if you found DNA in a mosquito in amber? <laughs> you know, what if you have a Jurassic Park experience here? And, well, under and the it might be code, it might be a eukaryote. Under the secret, it's currently the secret is currently to accommodate archaea and bacteria um, from sequence using sequence data as nomenclatural types. But potentially in the future, I think under the, the zoological code, you can actually use DNA for describing new organisms. So technically, if it's a eukaryote and they got DNA, a, a Jurassic Park moment, they would be able to describe that organism under the actual, is it the IC, I don't know, ZN, ZN, Z, the zoological I code of the main Oh, I don't know if it would be Z yeah. or Z for the majority of people listening. Oh, you can you can go either way. <laughs> definitely, we definitely have an international audience. Yeah, 
that, that that requirement that requirement of living type material is unique, is unique to prokaryotes. So yes. we really are only solving a very specific problem in, in, in prokaryotes. No, no, nobody needs a living oak to name a new species of oak or a living tiger to, to, to name a, a new species. Or a mating pair. It would be the equivalent of having pair. a mating <laughs> pair to be able to name the organism. That, that right, you'd have because, to somehow to maintain to and keep somewhere. <laughs> it needs to be viable going forward. Yeah, so that's unique to prokaryotes, yes. that problem. Many thanks for coming along today and having a chat with us. Today, we've been talking about systematics, specifically seq code, which is a nomenclature code for naming prokaryotes described from sequence data. And talking to us has been Marika Palmer and Miguel Rodriguez. And you've been with Lee and Nabil today. And this is the Microbinfi podcast. And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.